Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, history, politics, and current events. Today's session is on inflation and Fed policies to bring it back under control. Our first speaker is John Taylor, who is the Mary and Robert Raymond Professor of Economics at Stanford. John is famous for developing the Taylor Rule. John will explain his Taylor Rule for setting the optimal short-term interest rate and why interest rates need to rise to quell rising inflation. Our second speaker is Casey Mulligan, who is the Ken Griffin Professor of Economics at the University of Chicago's Booth School and the former chief economist for the Council of Economic Advisors in the Trump administration. Casey explained how government stimulus increased inflation and discouraged employment. He will also discuss his recent work in the pharmaceutical industry that shows how middlemen help lower prices for consumers. Our final speaker is Alan Auerbach, who was my econ professor when I was a student at Penn. Alan is currently the Robert D. Birch Professor of Economics and Law at UC Berkeley. Alan will discuss the dynamics between current inflation and employment. I chose the topic of inflation for this week's podcast because the CPI statistic released this week was up 9.1%, which was the highest annual rate of inflation since 1981. The price of energy is up 41% on the year, food is up 10.4%, and all other items and services are up 5.9%. It is this ex-food and energy inflation that is the most disturbing because it indicates the breadth of the inflationary problem. The detail of the CPI report is also informative. Rent was up 0.8% last month alone, which was the largest monthly increase in rent in 36 years. Dental services increased by 1.9% last month and was the largest monthly increase in dental expenses ever recorded. Motor vehicle maintenance rose by 2.0% last month, the largest increase for any month in 48 years. Rent dentistry, and auto maintenance price increases cannot be blamed on fighting in Ukraine or supply chain problems at the ports. This is good old-fashioned inflation caused by too much money chasing two-foot goods and services. The Fed is raising interest rates, but they're late to the party. We're going to hear today from a monetary specialist, a labor market economist, and a macroeconomist on how to bring inflation back under control. Let's start with John Taylor. John, thanks for joining us today. In your opening remarks, can you discuss if you agree that the Federal Reserve should have started raising interest rates months ago to subdue inflation? The Fed got behind the curve. There was another period where the Fed was behind almost as much, and that was back in the 70s when Arthur Burns was the chair of the Fed. President Nixon was the president of the United States, and Arthur Burns said, hey, it's not us, it's you. And so he convinced Nixon to have wage and price controls on the whole economy. And it was a disaster. And eventually, people wised up and realized it was monetary policy. And we learned from that experience. But what's surprising now is the Fed has never been so far behind. When inflation rates, 5 6 7%, even higher by some measures, in the 70s, the Fed got so far behind, they had to catch up. And catching up, it was damaging. So this particular episode is different than inflation is not seven or eight years old, it's a year and a half old, two years at the most. That's what the advantages of a rule or a strategy is. The Fed can indicate that, look, we can't have inflation this high and have interest rates this low, so we're going to have to raise it. And some of the members of the FMC have already begun to talk about that. It has to be over 3% or so. What's most important now is the Fed 
indicates inflation is high, expectations of inflation are high, people are worried we're going to have to raise rates. And that's not bad. That's good for the economy. And quite frankly, the economy is already slowing because people anticipate some kind of reaction. And I'll finish here. It's very important for the Fed to publish rules. That's the hope why we can get out of this with much less damage than in the past. John Taylor, you're an economist who created the Taylor Rule. Your rule is meant as a target for the Federal Reserve to set the Fed funds rate. The formula is based on the sum of the rate of inflation plus the real interest rate, plus an additional amount based on the output gap. Can you explain the Taylor Rule's application to today's economy? Well, it's a very simple rule, so it's easy to explain. The interest rate should be higher if the inflation rate is higher, and there's a coefficient of 1.5, so inflation rises by 1%, the interest rate should rise by 1.5%. So that's part of it. And if the inflation rate is 2% and the real rate should be 1, then 3. You should aim for 3 in normal times. To clarify, the interest rate should be the sum of inflation and the real interest rate around 3% in normal times. And when inflation is more, then you need to uh, adjust the interest rate. So inflation is running over 8% now, and that is 6% more than the inflation target. But no one's recommending raising interest rates by 6%. What am I missing? Yeah, I think the most important thing with these rules is you don't surprise people. If the Fed moves to 5% overnight, that'll be a surprise. But I always argue that you use these rules in a prospective way. If inflation is going to continue to be this high, we will have to raise rates. That's what good monetary policy is about. If the Fed is behind the curve, why not raise interest rates immediately to the correct interest rate? Why, why does the Fed want to raise interest rates to the correct rate over several months or maybe even a year? I think the reason is you don't want to shock everybody. Members of the FOMC are saying it has to be over 3%, maybe a couple 75 basis points of what's required. I think the trick here is you have to make the adjustments in a way that is consistent with the markets. It can do damage to have an interest rate that's increasing too rapidly. So you have this compromise. I think one year works pretty well, and you move to it gradually. Beginning last fall, when inflation started to really increase, the, both the Fed and the Biden administration said that inflation was transitory and the price increases were caused by supply chain problems. After the war in Ukraine started, the administration blamed Putin for rising gas prices. Do you believe that inflation is transitory? We know, if you look at the data, that it's not just this transitory thing. There's always supply effects. There's always events happening in the world. It's a monetary phenomenon, and that's something that has to be emphasized and stressed. I focused a lot on the interest rate being low. There's money growth. There's purchases of assets, all those things which come into play in thinking about it. But the main thing is that, as you point out, the transitory aspect seems to have disappeared from the vocabulary, and people realize that action needs to be taken, and they're just starting to do that. Existing home prices have risen 20% in the past 12 months. What does this tell you about inflation? Some prices move more rapidly than others. Housing prices up very rapidly, but they also can come down. And the trick here is monetary policy won't always be accommodating these high prices and that it can't last. The hope is that inflation, starting with housing or other durable goods, will moderate and come down off these very high levels without having the contraction. That's why I like rules or strategies. You indicate not only where the interest rate is now, but where it will be a year from now or even two years that are necessary to make this a smooth adjustment. 
This is where internationally becomes very important because you cannot have a global inflation and have low inflation in one country. It just doesn't work that way. So as the Fed begins to tighten, you're also seeing other countries raising interest rates. The CPI statistics for the U.S. economy show incredible breadth in inflation across various goods and services. Sure, oil is up, but everything else is up nearly double digits as well, like food, car prices, housing, etc. What do you make of the breadth in American inflation? Well, first of all, the breadth is beyond Ukraine. It's beyond the backup in ports. Monetary policy should focus on keeping the overall inflation rate low and keeping the economy steady. I don't mean it does everything with respect to income distribution, with respect to regulation. If the central bank focuses on inflation, that's a big enough job rather than try to do everything else. So monetary policy is one aspect. There's fiscal policy, there's regulatory policy, there's international policy. So let's focus on the things that monetary policy is good at based on history and based on theory and do those. The U.S. had a $1.9 trillion stimulus package in 2021. Plus, there was also an infrastructure bill that passed. Was fiscal policy pro-cyclical and that increased the inflation problem some more? Well, maybe we overdid it. So I think the stimulus that we had recently is questionable. During the inflation of the 70s, wages got indexed to inflation, and it was very challenging to reduce inflation afterwards. Is that going to be a problem now? If prices continue to go up, wages will rise, and that'll cause inflation to rise even further. That's the so-called wage price spiral. We haven't seen it yet. That's why I think there's some hope that we'll be able to deal with this. Remember, policy which addresses inflation, it doesn't necessarily make unemployment higher. It says expectations of inflation are lower. The economy is different. There's more flexibility to deal with these issues than there used to be. I'd say going back to previous periods, inflation took a long time to build up. Wage inflation took a long time to rise. We're not quite there yet. There are lags to monetary policy, and that means it takes time for changes in monetary policy to change the economy. Some say the lag is around 18 months. And what does that mean for changing interest rates? So lags are so important. That's All these rules and strategies were built off of models and ideas that included the lags is a big, big thing. You want to have a policy that takes into account the lags. But I think what we found long ago was that these lags are not fixed. To some extent, the lags are based on expectations of what you think is going to come. And so expectations can adjust very quickly. And so what many people found working with ideas and equations and theories and models, whatever you want to call it, is that the economy could adjust more quickly if the central banks were clear about what they're doing. Some people argue, hey, there's no lags. We can fix expectations. We had this theory called rational expectations, meant that people would just look at what the central bank was doing and they would adjust their prices and wages accordingly. What is your forecast for both nominal and real interest rates in the next year or two? The Fed, they're behind now. They hope that by getting to three, three and a half, maybe inflation will come down. But I don't think there's too much question that the real rate has to rise in order to deal with the inflation issues. Larry Summers has recently said that we need to get interest rates close to 6% in order to quell the current inflation. Do you agree with him? I don't think that Larry has a specific model or rule. He says that it should be higher. He was just at the conference we had here and expressed those views. 
I think they all tie back to the same thing, that rates need to be higher to deal with the inflation rate. I think the most important thing is to experiment in a real-time sense with these alternatives. Is it 3%? Is it 6%? Is it 5%? And what's the speed? The commentary that Larry Summers is putting out is very important. He's been there. He's, he's seen it. And it's influential. The fact that the Fed chair testifies, there's people are asking questions, programs like this, the newspaper, all sorts of things creates an important dialogue so that it's not done in a vacuum. I think there's a promising aspect of this episode and the people learn from history, hopefully can make this adjustment. And that is it's better to be close to some rule or strategy than farther away. Inflation started to increase for that reason. Whatever strategy or rule you use, and a rule can be a guideline. In fact, the Fed has to say why they're off if they are off. And so it provides a great deal of transparency. It provides a great deal of knowledge of what the Fed is doing. There's debates within the Fed, and that becomes more public. So I think that this is all part of good policy. And that's another reason to be transparent, so that the European Central Bank knows as best as possible what the Fed is doing in the Bank of England, et cetera. So that provides additional transparency and indication of what you're doing. I tend to use the word strategy rather than rule when I can. Who could disagree with having a strategy? Well, you might disagree about a rule. It sounds more technical, but strategy or overall sense of how policy works is an attractive feature of policy. We have a global inflation problem right now. You look at Latin America, it's increasing. England, it's increasing. It's all over the place. And that's another reason why the Fed's actions are important because it will encourage other countries to raise the rates as well. Next topic is asset prices. Stocks are out like 20% this year. How do asset prices affect inflation and Fed behavior? So asset prices are a very, very important part of the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. So you don't want to ignore them. They go in the same direction. A higher interest rate, it tends to slow the appreciation of the stock market. John, I end each session on a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to monetary policy? I'm optimistic that we'll be able to get the inflation down without much of a harmful effect on the economy. If we have a perfect thing, people adjust their expectations of inflation, adjust their wage demands. Ultimately, we will need a lower inflation rate for a successful economy. My optimistic note is by thinking about the mechanism, thinking about how expectations are formed, thinking about history, thinking about other countries that will be able to get this right. The inflation rate, while it's been there for a year and a half or more, it's not like it was in previous periods. And so there's something that can be done about it. And I think the Fed if it can make this adjustment in a smooth way. And that's why I'm optimistic. Thanks, John. Our next speaker will be Casey Mulligan. Casey was chief economist for the Council of Economic Advisors to the President in the Trump administration. He is now a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. Casey, thanks for joining us. In your opening remarks, can you describe what is causing the rise in inflation and whether that will result in a recession? There's talk about a recession right now, and this is an interesting time where we could have a recession by one definition, but not by the other. GDP definition looks like we could have a recession, very likely. But nonetheless, employment be growing during that GDP recession. By definition, that's a pretty bad productivity recession because productivity is GDP per worker. But it was predicted when we saw 
Biden's agenda in 2020, we tried to work out, well, what would the consequences be of that? And there's a lot of productivity reducing elements of that agenda. Maybe the bit of a surprise is how the Build Back Better hasn't passed, which has tax increases on business built in. But inflation has done that work for Biden. Inflation amounts to a pretty hefty tax on businesses because the business tax code is an index to inflation. To oversimplify a bit, businesses are experiencing a lot of bracket creep, to use the Ronald Reagan term, and that's a big disincentive to invest. And investment's one of the ways we get productivity. Ultimately, the capital comes to businesses from people. So that is raising their cost of capital because their owners and their creditors are paying more in tax and getting less in return. It also happens on the business side. They're allowed to deduct for their expenses for capital equipment and other investments. But it's based on historical, not based on what it costs to replace the car, truck, whatever. And inflation is driving up those replacement costs. The end result is big hit on the return to capital. And that's a pretty effective way we saw it in the 70s of really killing off business investment. With high inflation, there's an enormous cost to those suckers who are holding U.S. dollar cash instead of in real assets. That non-interest-bearing cash is funding our deficit now. Is inflation an effective way of paying for government expenditures instead of raising taxes? Well, let me just point out the history around that. What you see time and time again is after a war, you get inflation. A war gets paid for in part with inflation. There have been arguments that it makes sense for wars because wars are unpredictable and you can catch people by surprise and not distort the economy too, too much. It's been a historical pattern. And maybe COVID is like that. It was a one-time war with a virus. Maybe in that instance, surprising people with some inflation is better than the alternative ways of raising the funds. It's fitting a historical pattern, I think, pretty well. How did Biden's COVID stimulus bill end up impacting the economy. The COVID bill had a lot of funds for people who were poor and unemployed. You and I talked years ago during the Obama stimulus about some of those incentives. I mean, this was almost an order of magnitude bigger incentives. $300 a week bonus. Obama's bonus was $25 a week. That's so quaint. Now, we saw that with businesses having an incredible time getting people to work and, of course, being told, Well, my pay for staying home is very good. The red states, even though it was money coming from Washington, is so disruptive to our economy and to other things that they put an early end to it. And we saw the red states getting an early recovery. You mentioned on a previous episode of What Happens Next that you expected the Biden stimulus bill to discourage employment by those workers because of that check they received. But when the money ran out, they would get a job. Today, there's an enormous demand for labor. The government's JOLT survey of businesses finds that there are 11 million job openings. Last month was the second highest on record. Historically, when the Fed was trying to reduce inflation, they could trigger a recession when higher interest rates would result in layoffs. So there's a transmission mechanism between interest rates and the labor markets. What do you make of the relationship between higher interest rates and the labor market? I've never believed in much of a connection there. I think the Fed's job is very important to keep inflation to a low level of inflation, predictable 
level of inflation for people. I don't think they can affect the real economy that much. There are parts of the economy that would be affected. So mortgages, maybe car loans. And those can translate into some of your headline employment numbers because already home construction is a pretty volatile industry in terms of employment. To the extent we see tepid employment growth, I would expect to see it the least in some of those interest-sensitive industries. I worked for a president who was from that industry. President Trump was a commercial real estate builder. He wouldn't accept for me the idea that Fed policy doesn't affect anything because he says interest-sensitive industries really feel the Fed tightening. Interest rates affect housing. During the 2008 housing downturn, workers who lost their jobs had trouble finding new employment. But today, with such enormous demand for skilled and unskilled workers in our economy, would you expect workers to find new jobs quickly? When I left the White House, I warned the president, if we have a downturn, I'm worried that Congress will make it deeper. They'll come forth with packages, a safety net, on top of the safety net we already have, that allow people to make that transition more slowly. So we haven't seen Congress do that yet, but it would fit the historical pattern that they would come in and say, oh, it's time for the $300 a week bonus, or maybe they would scale it back to a mere 100 a week. But that would make the transition a lot more difficult. In your opening remarks, you mentioned two different types of recessions. One was where you see two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. Another might be an uptick in unemployment. How do you see this economic downturn playing itself out. Do you expect to see significant upticks in unemployment or just a decline in GDP? I think it's primarily a decline in GDP. Unemployment can go up for two reasons, people working less or people not considering themselves retired. Some of the policies will be targeted toward the unemployed, but not targeted toward the retired and the others. But certainly on the employment side, we have a productivity problem. That means that GDP is going to fall more than employment. And maybe employment doesn't fall at all. What are your current thoughts on the state of the labor market? One of my kind of mottos is price and quantity. The headline numbers on the labor market are the quantity, how many people working. But there's also the price side, what's going on with wages, what's going on with productivity. That side of the labor market is not doing well. And the productivity recession is going to mean low real wages for people. There's also... These semi-retired people you're talking about, they're knowledgeable people, and that knowledge has to get passed on somehow. In the old days, it happened because the younger folks were guided by the older folks right there at the workplace together. You have this generation of young workers who aren't getting the training, they're having to learn things the hard way. That's not going to be good for their personal wages and the economy as a whole, not good for productivity. Pre-COVID, young people used to learn in an apprentice-like fashion from older workers. How do you think about Zoom as a culture that affects productivity and the knowledge transfer between the old and the young? That's something I tried to quantify. Actually, in March 2020, I wrote a paper both about the closed schools, who are people who are formally learning from older people called teachers, but also for the informal learning that happens at work, which is also very important. It doesn't go in the schooling statistics. And... That was a big loss. I estimated that half of the productivity growth for that cohort of people who were age 20s when the COVID came, they wouldn't get. They'll always be a little behind. It's like missing a grade in school or two grades in school. I deal with a lot of young people in my job, and I always urge them, 
take that job that's in person and put it on your resume that was in person so that your next boss knows that you actually learned something rather than being a square on one of these screens. Casey, what are you optimistic about? I always had a lot of confidence in American people generally. When we had that Obama stimulus, I was frustrated the academics didn't realize the problems with it, but the regular people did. You saw a wave in the 2010 elections. So I think people understand that some of these policies have gone too far off of the middle way. We saw that in Virginia, and I think we'll see that nationwide. And that's ultimately the strength. If I got to choose between the people being wise versus a few of the experts being wise, I'll choose the people because the people are in charge in our country as they ought to be. And so I continue to be optimistic as I have been my entire career and the American people. Maybe they don't have the technical expertise, but they have a lot of sense and they can understand the big picture. And when they're given an opportunity, they generally push our policies in a better direction. Casey, you were the chief economic advisor during the Trump administration. You were responsible for writing the annual economic report of the president. How do Biden's economic reports to the president differ from yours? Well, there's a big difference. Now, I think a lot of the difference between our reports and Biden's is more that the Trump's reports were so unusual. Historically, we applied economics over and over and over again. We have more supply and demand analyses in our economic reports than the entire history of the economic reports. We use supply and demand for drug addiction, homelessness, energy. We had used it for vaccine innovation before there was any pandemic to vaccinate against. Why do you think the economic report of the president, as released by the Biden administration, reverted back to its previous method? They didn't serve special interests. A lot of special interests got angered, especially special interests within the government. To say that the FDA is a problem when you're running the government, of which the FDA is a part, to say that human health and human services made big mistakes around opioids, only a Trump type of character would allow that stuff to be said. And then we, the staff, realized that this is an opportunity to say things that haven't been said before. I mean, the other part would be that this is a different party in charge. They have a big emphasis on monopsony in that report, that the reason wages are low is because people, in effect, live in a one-company town and they have nowhere to choose from. It's very Marxist emphasis. Marx really liked to describe the economy as a one-company town. Your choice is to work for the man or starve. And he liked to boil it down to that choice as if it were slavery, and slavery was that way. That's their conceptual framework in a lot of that report, and I think it's terribly misdirected. Human capital, the knowledge, health, the kinds of things that you and I talked about today, those are the things that raise wages. When you don't have them, you have low wages. Talking about the one company town is an entire distraction. I guess it justifies some additional level of regulation, and maybe that's what they want. In this week's Wall Street Journal, you have an op-ed about the role of firms that work for your health insurance companies responsible for drug distribution to patients. What were your key insights in that piece? They're called the pharmacy benefit managers. Trump called them the middlemen. Now, a lot of people, Democrats and Republicans, call them middlemen because they don't make the drugs. They don't have a retail outlet to hand out the prescriptions to the patient. They are in the middle. They've created competition where there really would be very little competition. The few drug companies we have, they get them at each other's throats, offering 
very big discounts, especially on the older drugs that are far from the innovation stage of things. It really helps save patients money, but most important, encourages utilization. That's how they get the rebates. They go to the drug company and they say, hey, if you give us a good discount, we will make sure people will take your drug when they need it. And they say that to the other drug company that's competing against. As a result, they get some great discounts and big utilization. So many of these new drugs are life-saving drugs and you get people utilizing them. That saves on hospital costs, makes people healthier. It's almost like the market bootstrapped itself into competition. We have these patents there that are stopping competition and the market figured out a way to create it anyway. Drug prices differ around the world. I was in South Africa pre-COVID and my daughter needed a specific drug and it was much cheaper there than here. This price difference has been a hot political issue that American pharmaceutical firms price discriminate based on the country you live in. And it seems that most frequently the American government and American consumers subsidize people offshore. Is that true? Europe doesn't have these middlemen. The patients and plans don't need to hire somebody to get them a deal because the government has already put a price control on it. The generic market is not very healthy later in the drug life cycle. I mentioned the stages of the drug life cycle because the innovation happens up front. It's an investment decision like any other industry. Should we spend the multi-billion dollars to try to discover a better treatment for this condition? The rates of return on the new drugs are really important for that innovative process. And the Europeans really legislated away any return on that. It's theft of intellectual property. The Chinese will come and just take our formula if they can, whereas you're not going to be able to get much money for your formula in a European country. One of the things Europeans have had to deal with is they get the new drugs later. The companies aren't in a big hurry to roll out their new drug in Europe when there's not going to be much revenue for them. So I think they get drugs about three years later. They got the vaccine about six months later. And it's not an accident. Pre-COVID, the pharmaceutical industry was viewed in the political arena as charging egregious prices and was the boogeyman. And then with the vaccine, the public persona of the pharmaceutical companies improved dramatically when they successfully offered a working vaccine. What do you think the pharma reputation will be post-COVID? Pharma companies are ahead of a very sweet spot as they really made this big problem a lot more manageable. And they did it in a hurry. From an image perspective, I think I'm worried that they've overshot it, that now they're getting the vaccines for the kids and encouraging that they be mandated. And it gives the perception that the companies are trying to use our public policy to pad their bottom line by expanding their market beyond where it merits expanding. We can debate whether it merits expanding, but from an image perspective, the pendulum's swinging a little bit back. The distribution, and let me say marketing, of the vaccine became a political thing. In fact, I'll take some personal blame for that. One of my career regrets is that when we did our analysis of pandemic vaccines before the pandemic, we talked about the private sector it needs to be manufacturing this stuff. They can do it quick. They can do it on scale if anybody can. Keep the government entirely out of manufacturing. I wish I had gone one more paragraph and said, keep the government out of the marketing because the government is terrible at marketing. You know, maybe you had a Coke and Pepsi vaccine. <laughs> one for the red people, one for the blue people. They both like their own kind and they could fight each other about how different they are, but they all would have gotten the vaccine. We didn't do that. We left it political. 
What do the middlemen in the pharmaceutical distribution system actually do? How do they help consumers and insurance companies provide the maximum value of pharmaceuticals paid per dollar of insurance? Coke and Pepsi is a good example. There's a little restaurant across the street from Miles called the Maple Tree Inn. They just got one restaurant. But they tell Coke, hey, Coke, if you give us a deal, everyone in this restaurant is going to have Coke. And they tell Pepsi, hey, Pepsi, if you give us a deal, everyone in this restaurant is going to have Pepsi. That really inspires a lot of competition, and they get a, quite a good deal, and more soda gets drunk. <laughs> the PBMs are doing the same thing around these drugs. They'll say, we've got a couple treatments for this condition. Hey, manufacturer A, if you give us a great deal, you are the treatment that will be used on our members. And they say that the manufacturer B as well, and they really get them fighting it out to be the exclusive one. And that increases treatments for that condition, and it's much cheaper. They also have a massive computer system. So you can go to a lot of different pharmacies and in their computer will be how much Larry owes based on his health insurance. And that saves the patient a lot of time. They don't have to take a receipt home and mail it into the insurance and get the check and cash it. That's been all cut out by the middlemen. Thanks, Casey, for joining us once again. Our next speaker is Alan Auerbach, who is professor of economics and law at UC Berkeley. Go ahead, Alan. I'd like to start with a quote attributed to Will Rogers. If you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. The U.S. economy recovered much more rapidly than was predicted in the spring of 2020. And fiscal policies adopted early in the pandemic played a role. But expansionary fiscal policy was pursued too much and for too long. In particular, the American Rescue Plan Act, enacted in March 2021, when the employment rate had already fallen to 6% and real GDP had already recovered beyond its pre-pandemic peak, provided $1.9 trillion in additional funding and tax reductions, including large direct payments to household and substantial aid to state and local governments. Why did we do this? I think there are three potential and not mutually inconsistent explanations. First, we were still uncertain about the direction of the pandemic. And just as we underpredicted the strength and speed of the recovery at the beginning, we were also pretty uncertain, even in the spring of 2021, whether we'd have a relapse. Second, some of our leaders were plagued by recriminations about not having done enough in 2009. And third, a purely political explanation, they were in control of both houses of Congress and the presidency for the first time in a decade, and they felt that this was the time to stuff as much as they could before they lost the opportunity to do so. Whatever the reason, that's where we are. What path should we pursue now for fiscal policy? Well, first, do no harm. That is, stop digging. The debt-to-GDP ratio has risen from 80% of GDP before the pandemic began to 100% now. In the short term, we should try to reduce deficits through judicious spending reductions and tax increases. And the key here is to target demand and not supply. That is, seek policies that soften demand to help fight inflation, but not restrict supply. This would also be a good time to address the long-term problems that have debt on an unsustainable trajectory. Entitlements, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, 
already account for more than half of the non-interest spending of the federal government. Do I think that this will happen in election year? Of course not. But the problem needs to be addressed at some point, and the sooner the better. And we don't have a recession to blame for not taking action right now. Fiscal policy bears some of the responsibility for the inflation that we are currently experiencing. And a good fiscal policy can contribute to its reversal. Thank you. As you were a student in 1985, you taught us macroeconomics from a neo-Keynesian perspective. To minimize volatility, governments would implement countercyclical fiscal policies, more spending during recessions and less during growth periods. In retrospect, countercyclical policies seem politically impossible. In your opening remarks, you try to explain why the Democrats increased government spending by $1.9 trillion, even when it was likely that we were already on a growth path. Do you think that countercyclical fiscal policy is impossible to implement in the current political environment? When we're in a recession, they can increase spending and cut taxes. Governments don't have trouble doing that. It's much harder to have tax increases and spending cuts to relieve the inflationary pressure on the economy. It was true during the Johnson administration when the economy was running red hot because of the Vietnam War and he really didn't want to do it. It's been true in many administrations since then, and it's clearly gotten worse because I think the parties now are both seeking political advantage by giving things to their constituents. And that doesn't leave a lot of room for responsible behavior. It means that we're relying a lot more heavily on the Federal Reserve to do all the work. And as we've experienced over the last year, the Federal Reserve is not perfect either. To give them the benefit of the doubt, I think it was a little hard to tell at least a year ago how much of it was due to supply shocks and temporary factors and how much of it was due to a permanent underlying strength in the economy. It would be better to have fiscal policy playing a role as well, but I think unless it's automatic stabilizers, tax increases that happen because profits and incomes are higher, or unemployment benefits going down because fewer people are unemployed, those things continue to function perfectly well as countercyclical policies, but they're not active policies, they're automatic. Discretionary fiscal policy, when tightening is needed, is not really alive. Well-anchored inflationary expectations is a valuable public good, and that now seems to be at risk. Have inflationary expectations already become unanchored? We had very good monetary policy for a long time in terms of keeping inflation expectations well anchored. Everybody's talking about losing that anchoring of expectations. If you look at the implied break-even forward inflation rate in the tips market at five and ten years, it's actually gone down in the last several weeks, and it never got that high. It's about 2.5% five years out, about 2.3% 10 years out. That's higher than it was. It was about 1.5% before the pandemic, but it's not like we're back in 1979 and 1980. I think if we didn't do anything about it and adopted unhelpful policies like wage and price controls and things like that, I think we could get ourselves back into that dark period, but I think we've got a while to go before we get there five- and ten-year implied inflation expectations have gone down in the recent weeks, precisely because the Fed not only took substantial action at its last meeting, but it implied very strongly that it was going to continue doing that. The labor market is incredibly strong. There are 11 million unfilled job openings. 
How will higher interest rates impact the job market? And does the strong labor market make the Fed's job harder to slow down aggregate demand? I find the current labor market numbers puzzling. In trying to think about how much the labor market tightness is feeding into inflation, you need to have a good measure of where we are relative to a normal non-accelerating rate of unemployment or uh, the NIRU or what we used to call the level of full employment. And by some measures, we're there, 3.6% unemployment rate. That's pretty much where we were just before the pandemic when the economy was humming along. By other measures, the labor force participation rate is still a bit low, although it's recovered a lot. But on the other hand, you look at job vacancies, and it's absolutely crazy. And by that measure, you're way beyond any conceivable level of full employment. Perhaps that's the most informative in terms of what in the labor market is driving inflation. The Fed wants to reduce inflation, and they've been increasing short-term interest rates. The euro-dollar market sees the Fed raising interest rates to 3.5% by next June, and then the Fed's expected to cut rates back down. Do you expect a recession? The Fed is hopeful not. Other people think it's pretty unlikely we'll avoid recession if we want to bring the inflation rate down that much. The housing market is traditionally where you'd expect to see the action first. There's unbelievable housing demand, which has driven prices up during the pandemic. I won't be at all surprised if the interest rate increases go beyond 3.5%. We would have to be very lucky to be able to stop there. You mentioned in your opening remarks that you wanted to increase aggregate supply. What policies can the Biden administration adopt that would increase supply? To the extent that we have tax increases, we stay away from discouraging economic activity. I, for example, am not a big fan of increases in business taxes right now. If there is going to be any legislation this year, which now looks pretty unlikely, that's where the tax increases would likely be, and I think that's unfortunate, given that there are already built-in tax increases coming in this year and in the years to come from the JOBS Act, which had all these temporary provisions, and 2022 was a key year in terms of reducing incentives for investment, requiring amortization of R&D, and tightening interest deductibility, and so forth. I certainly wouldn't go beyond those measures and add additional business taxes. That's what I'm thinking about when I'm saying try not to restrict supply. I'll mention a carbon tax just because as an economist, in order to maintain good standing in the profession, I have to do so. It's something that is obvious to economists as the way we should be doing environmental policy, and it would give us some revenue at the same time. President Biden has proposed the opposite of your suggestion, a pro-carbon tax policy. He recently mentioned that he wants to reduce the federal tax on gasoline. I could live with phasing the carbon tax increase in rather than doing it immediately. A temporary reduction in the gasoline tax. The last time I remember that being proposed was during the summer of the 2008 campaign when Hillary Clinton and John McCain both proposed doing it and Barack Obama rose in my estimation by refusing to go along. Gasoline prices are temporarily high because of the Ukraine war. Introducing a carbon tax, even at a very small rate, just as a signal that we're going to be moving in that direction, I think would be a very beneficial thing to do. Monetary policy is going to be by far the most important thing we can do and labor market measures to encourage people to work. Alan, can you believe there are 11 million job vacancies? I don't know what to think about it. The pandemic has made economists humble in many ways. Different indicators of the labor market don't mesh the way we usually see. 
as the economy softens, we're going to go through a period where the labor market begins to look not weak, but normal. My guess is the unemployment rate's not going to rise that much. Demand for workers is going to soften somewhat, so those huge number of vacancies is going to go down, and we'll see something closer to balance in the labor market. It would take a really big drop in demand and interest rate increases more than 3.5% for us to go to a situation where firms start shedding a lot of workers. The current political forecast is that Congress will be majority Republican after the midterms. Do you believe there could be a political compromise that would reduce government deficits? If I were to put my optimistic hat on, Biden has the ability to talk to Republicans. He's shown that. The parties have painted themselves into corners, and it will be hard to come out and meet. Republicans say no tax increases. Democrats say no spending cuts, and it's pretty hard to have a policy that softens demand if you take those two things as given. You know, a really terrible recession or runaway inflation, but short of that, it's hard to see much happening. In your academic research, you focus on entitlement reform. Do you think we have any chance of changes to Medicare or Social Security to get these programs on a sustainable path? If you think about what a good entitlement reform measure would look like, it would have a lot of advance notice. The way the 1983 Social Security changes had, those had increases in the retirement age. We could be doing that now. I've always thought that we would pay the entitlement programs if society could afford it, and we would not if we couldn't. Why not change entitlements be linked to nominal GDP instead of CPI so that we were honest about whether people get paid? Who should be bearing the risks, the demographic risk of these programs? What the productivity growth rate is going to be, what the mortality rate is going to be. And so there's certainly argument for sharing that risk. That is, not all of it should be borne by the retiring generation. Some of it should be borne by younger generations. One of the arguments for putting some of that risk on younger generations is that they have more years to make it up. You don't go to an 80-year-old and say, oh, bad year, you know, <laughs> too bad for you. There's a benefit to not to waiting because people don't save enough for retirement. But we certainly want to give them every encouragement to do so. And if their benefits are going to be lower, we want to give them every opportunity to stay in the labor force longer if they're able. I was on a National Academies panel some years ago, we issued a report six years ago, that considered having an increase in normal retirement age. One of the disturbing things that's happened in recent decades is the life expectancies have diverged. Life expectancy depends a lot on income distribution. It was always related, that is, more affluent people always live longer, but it's become much more significant than it was. Telling a person who's going to die in his early 70s that the retirement age just went up from 66 or 67 to 69, you're cutting out a lot of his benefits, and others not so much. And one of the policy ideas we talked about was having an income-linked retirement age. If I were working in manual labor, I'd probably have a lower life expectancy too. One modification of our formulas could be to have a reduction in benefits that would be bigger for people who are living longer. Alan, what are you optimistic about? I have some hope that the economy is going to come out of the current situation without a serious recession. I'm somewhat hopeful that we have mixed government starting in 2023, that the two sides see their way forward to making compromises to actually give us some legislation in the fiscal area as well as other areas. 
Thanks to John, Casey, and Alan for joining us today. That ends this session. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The topic was eyewitness accounts of the Highland Park Massacre. The speakers were my brother-in-law, David Baum, and his daughter, Brittany Robluski. David and Brittany were present when the shooting started. David is an OBGYN, and when the shooting stopped, he ran to assist the victims. You'll want to hear his descriptions of what happened and what can be done about it. Brittany will highlight what it was like for a young mother to have participated in the parade and then to have to run for her life. I would like now to plug next week's show. Our first speaker will be Michelle Margulis, who is an associate professor of political science at Penn. Michelle has a new book entitled From Politics to the Pews, How Partisanship and the Political Environment Shape Religious Identity. Our second speaker will be Julian Zelizer, who is the Malcolm Stevenson Forbes Class of 41 Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton. He has a book entitled Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich and the Rise of the New Republican Party. You can find all of our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, What Happens Next, in sixminutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcast, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.